Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, marijuana legalization and federalism. So, Richard, as we know, we had a couple of states uh, last year who began implementing their regimes of legalized marijuana, Washington and Colorado, the latter of which is going to occupy a lot of our time today. In November's elections, you also saw these legalization efforts succeed in Oregon and Alaska and and Washington, D.C. There are indications that other states may be planning on kind of following suit in the future. Before we get into this from the legal side, let's, let's just examine it from the policy perspective for a minute. Most of your fellow libertarians, I think it's fair to say, don't really have a second's misgiving about marijuana legalization. Some of them are equally bullish about legalizing all drugs. Um, are you that sanguine? No, I've never been that sanguine about this issue. It's not to say that I'm imposed, but let me tell you what I think the difference is. The standard hardline libertarian says what you do with your own life is your own business, and if it turns out you choose to wreck it, well, that's just fine. Somebody like myself says, you know, if it turns out that what you do is you wreck your mind a little bit so that you're not capable of doing something that you ought to do, and you inflict further danger upon yourself, that's a serious kind of harm that we may want to think about regulating. And we're of course, is that when you start engaging in situations that bend your mind, the harm is not only to yourself, it's to your families, it's to your friends. If you're driving an automobile under the influence of this, that, or the other drug, it may well be that you're going to start to harm strangers. Uh, So what happens is the libertarian tends to think about a world in which completed harms are subject to sanctions are the only thing that you worried about. The classical liberal like myself takes uncertainty to a much higher level of relevance in this thing and is worried about threatened harms that come from the the use of these various kinds of drugs and isn't quite sure what to do about it. The reason you don't become dogmatic on the other side, which says ban everything from coffee on out, is it's very costly to impose these kinds of restrictions on people. They do interfere with personal liberty. Sometimes they backfire and drive you into the underground market and so forth. Uh, so you have to figure out exactly whether or not you can target this stuff without having a set of consequences worse than those which you're trying to deal with. And marijuana, of course, is sort of on the cusp. If you're talking about relatively mild blends of this stuff, not that I have the slightest idea of what those might be. Um, <laughs> I just, you know, I've never smoked a cigarette in my life, so I'm not the person that you want to talk to for experiential validation of any of this stuff. <laughs> Fair I enough. Mean, you know, so, you know, you sit there, you don't know the blends. It may well be that, you know, this is not worth worrying about, but there's a tendency for people to increase the concentration of the active ingredients on this stuff, to find new ways of administration that can lead to serious kinds of difficulties. When you get drugs like Oxycontin, there's real questions about how the distributions are going to start to go. Uh, so that what happens is the uncertainty of this and the third party effects, even within the framework of a kind of a larger libertarian theory, mean that you just cannot be gone. Now, we also see this in some of these other programs because the legalization often starts out in connection with medical marijuana where I'm strongly in favor of its use. Um, That is, at least on a dispensed basis and so forth. It turns out there's absolutely nothing that you can dream up out of the pharmacopoeia of any of the major companies, which does as well for people who have serious pain in the end stages of life. And finding methods of distribution that target these audiences seems to me to be something that we really, really want to do. But 
then the miracle marijuana kind of becomes larger and you just keep on announcing that there are more and more ailments for which marijuana is a cure and then you require less and less documentation that you have the ailment that is supposed to be done and it slowly transforms itself into an open system and you then run into some of the problems that you're about. So what happens is you find out there are differences of opinion. This then ties into federalism. Because with federalism, the argument is the states are the laboratories and you know Colorado will decide to go whole hog in one direction and we can anticipate its effects and Nebraska and Oklahoma will be a little bit more state on this thing and then we can see which of these two states or three states starts to do better than the other. So it's a very kind of complicated issue and you know over the years I've become more convinced that hardline libertarianism is wrong because they tend to be too emphatic on some of these must-see issues like drugs and oddly enough care less about the things that I really do care about, minimum wage laws and so forth where I don't think you see any of these ambiguities. Okay, let's talk about some of the legal issues that you sort of anticipated there. One of the wrinkles here is that marijuana is classified as a Schedule One drug under the Controlled Substances Act, which is, of course, a piece of federal legislation. Can you explain for the audience how drug laws came to be a matter of federal purview and whether or not you think that's the proper level of government at which to handle it? Well, what happens is the way in which it became federal was the clear concern with the distribution of drugs across state lines. And this is a concern which led to the original regulation of drugs, all kinds of drugs, with the Food and Drug Act of 1906. Um, And one could clearly say that it's surely within the scope of the Commerce Clause to regulate those things that are shipped. Um, In a case called Champion and Ames, it was held that you could regulate the shipment of lottery tickets in interstate commerce even if they were legal in the state where they were made, legal in the state where they were sold, and not doing a hell of a lot of harm on the train when they were sitting there going back and forth. It was that 1903 precedent that led to the regulation of the transmission of drugs. The Constitution then changes in 1937 with the New Deal, and all of a sudden the manufacture of drugs, which was outside the scope of the 1906 Food and Drug Act, except when they were manufactured manufactured in the territories where the United States government had direct control, all of a sudden they could now control manufacturing within the states. And so it is that they could control it with respect to controlled substances, which is supposed to be used for only very limited purposes. And remember, we don't say banned substances. We say it's the Controlled Substances Act, because what happens is Congress in its infinite wisdom has decided that some limited use of some of these products is certainly going to be appropriate and then it regulates the parties who can dispense them, the parties who can manufacture them and the distribution channels over which they run and it's a pretty comprehensive statute and if you actually go back and look at sort of Washington politics and so forth The drug guys seem to win over just about everybody else when there's a head-to-head conflict between what's going on. So the anti-discrimination people say, you know, we really don't think it's fair to discriminate against people on the grounds of prior drug use and so forth. The drug people come back in the opposite direction. And sure enough, if you read the statutes, the exemptions from the anti-discrimination law for the Controlled Substance Act seems to be the dominant position that gets taken today. So it's a very powerful lobby. They write some briefs, I have to say, which I find frankly nauseating in connection pardon the pun uh, in connection with medical marijuana for example the government brief took the position those people who thought that the uh, use of the drug to 
control the illnesses associated or the pain associated with final illnesses, they really didn't understand the fact that they weren't feeling better. Uh, so what you do is you now have the government telling you how you feel, and everybody who feels the opposite way is not entitled to or competent to speak on these issues. So this is a really massive kind of situation, and the simple story is, as the scope of the federal government becomes ever larger under the Commerce Clause, uh, the scope of federal drug regulation gets ever larger as well. Okay, so all of that brings us to this lawsuit that has been filed by the states of Oklahoma and Nebraska, uh, both of which border Colorado. Their argument is essentially that because the federal law has not been amended or, or repealed, the Obama Justice Department is just choosing not to enforce it, that this regime is unconstitutional. They're arguing that they're seeing marijuana flow into their states as a result of what's happened in Colorado which essentially undermines their prohibition. What do you make of this case? Well, it seems to me what's happened is it's the classic kind of a lawsuit in which there's a dispute between A and B when the true culprit turns out to be C. Um, what you really have to say on this question is the usual problem about Obama is do you allow for wholesale removal of various kinds of criminal prohibitions on the ground that the president thinks that resources are better deployed elsewhere? And generally speaking, you can make that argument about any statute and any part of any statute. So if you accept this in unvarnished form, the president now shall not see that the laws are faithfully executed. He shall make darn sure that they're not going to be executed at all. And, you know, they have a real grief against the federal government because the ability of the federal government both to limit the use of drugs in Colorado is there, but more importantly, even if you decided from the federal side to back off of the internal use in Colorado, you could still enforce the prohibitions against transshipment of these goods across state lines, which the federal government has refused to do. So now, since the federal government is basically out of the picture, it becomes very difficult in my mind to say that uh, one set of states are entitled to sue this other state on the grounds that its internal use will lead to internal abuse and sale of drugs outside the kind of border. Um, their answer is we can certainly try to prosecute people inside Nebraska or in Oklahoma who sell drugs which they receive from Colorado. But unless we can stem this stuff at the, whole, at the source, trying to get it at the retail level with small-time distributors and so forth is a hopeless task. Um, and I think in the end what's going to happen is there will be jurisdiction in the Supreme Court. It's a dispute between two states, which means that the Supreme Court could hear it at first instance. They'll refer it to a magistrate, but my guess is that they will dismiss it. So you don't think the, the court will take it up at all? Um, I don't think so. I mean, look, I, let me sort of give an example. One of the subjects I love to teach, of course, is water law. And it turns out that one of the key precedents in these cases are the water law cases. And the difficulty with water law is as follows. Uh, you could take it in one of two variations. One, and they both come from the early 20th century, you have pollution which is claimed to originate in the state of Illinois, which makes itself downstream into the same in Missouri. And so you go to the Supreme Court and the Missouri guys say, please enjoin the omission of the pollution from the Illinois guys. And the Supreme Court first held that this was an appropriate cause of action around 1900. And six years later, after they looked at the evidence, there was a very strong opinion by Oliver Wendell Holmes, which said, it's much more likely that pollution that started inside the state of Missouri was responsible for the downstream harm. And in fact, we're not even sure that any of this stuff was actually causally relevant to the harms and the diseases done because there are too many 
other possible sources of causation. So that's a case in which the theory was validated and the facts were not proved. Now, the second line of case, which involves Colorado and Nebraska again about the same time, is just how much water can you divert? from an interstate river um, in Colorado, um, which may prejudice what's going to happen in Nebraska or the other way around. And what the Supreme Court said is we believe in this doctrine of equitable apportionment. That is, you cannot have all the water gobbled up by the first state, leaving nothing for the second state to have. And then what it did is it punted on the question of how it implemented that scheme because it said that the downstream state did not show that it had suffered sufficient diminution in the amount of water that it received that would require a remedy. So they said, wait for next year. Now, what's the difference between these two cases and the one that we have here? Well, in those cases, it's all physical movements of stuff one way or the other. The moment you start talking about the drugs, what happens is you always have to introduce a third party. So I think it was Eugene Volick said quite cleverly that, you know, the drugs start to flow from Colorado into Nebraska and into Oklahoma, but the use of the word flow is now metaphorical rather than precise. The precise term is that there are other individuals who have taken it. Now, once you introduce the more precise delineation, there is now another party that can serve as a defendant in this case, namely the messenger or the transporter, and there is no such intermediate party when you're dealing with the two kinds of water cases. So the precedents are eminently distinguishable uh, from the one that we have here, and I think what will happen is the Supreme Court will say we're not going to interfere in the internal affairs of Colorado by virtue of the fact that some of its citizens do things on the outside of the state unless you can show that it's a direct spillover like water pollution or there's another famous case from exactly the same period involving air pollution from a smelting factory inside Tennessee which damaged the air inside Georgia. So they will distinguish the pollution cases from the transmission cases and they will be right to do it. So final question then, is there anything going forward that you think will arrest this kind of increasing liberalization of the marijuana laws across the country? Well, first, one of the things is, of course, the dynamic is, I think, very clear. If you liberalize it in one place, it's quite clear that it's going to spread in one form or another. Forget about the intermediate, even. There certainly will be at the border people from Nebraska or Oklahoma who will go into Colorado and buy things from stations of places within two or three miles of the border and then bring it back home in their cars, and nobody will be, quote-unquote, the wiser. So there's no question that the spotted element of this thing will certainly give a heavy favor to the those states which turn out to be in favor of legalization. What will change this will be a new president. And I'm not talking about Hillary Clinton or Elizabeth Warren. I'm talking about a more traditional Republican kind of president who may believe that drugs are sort of inherently bad and will decide that prosecutorial discretion for the president doesn't really work. And so he says, what we're going to do is reinforce the laws under these things, and then you'll take it up to Congress to see whether or not they wish to uh, water it down or reduce it to some extent. But I think, in effect, that the lawsuit will lose, the spread of the practices will continue to rise. The only thing I think in the short term that might change it, which I don't think is all that likely to have, is you'll get some batch of very badly corrupted marijuana that results in serious illnesses for people outside of the state. And now, in effect, instead of it being a morals and a lifestyle issue, all of a sudden it becomes a real serious, big-time, bona fide health issue, at which point all of the wheels will start to turn in the other direction. But I'm not sure that's going to happen. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. 
For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.